Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. I didn't want to just write a history of the building that Bertram Goodhue designed in the 1920s. I really wanted to look at the whole history of the institution building towards that moment when, when they could move into it. In this episode, I speak with Kenneth Breisch, Associate Professor in the School of Architecture at the University of Southern California, about his recent book titled The Los Angeles Central Library, Building an Architectural Icon. The Central Library in downtown Los Angeles is a beloved landmark among Angelinos far and wide. If you've ever visited it in person or seen photographs of it, you know why. It is an extraordinary structure with domed celestial ceilings, expansive murals, and figurative sculptures that appear to emerge from the architecture itself. The building is the largest public research library west of the Mississippi, and it functions as the headquarters for the Los Angeles Public Library System, which serves the largest population of any public library system in the United States. In his recent book on the Los Angeles Public Library, published by the Getty in June 2016, Kenneth Breisch chronicles the institution's first six decades from its founding as a private library association in 1872 through the design, construction, and completion of the iconic Central Library Building in 1933. This story reveals the complexities in the development of a civic institution, a public library in particular, alongside a civic plan and a rapidly growing city. The building of a building, we learn, is more than just its materials and design, it's also its people and politics. I met with Ken one afternoon at the Getty to talk about his book. I want to begin with the title of the book, Ken, because it turns on the verb building. And by turning on the verb building, the book's title seems to tell us that its subject is not only the construction of one of the most handsome public buildings in any U.S. city, but also the political drama behind its construction and the philosophical and aesthetic justification of its iconographic program. That is, what made it look the way it does. How conscious were you about the significance of the term building for the library? I think I, I'm very conscious of it from from the very beginning. In fact, uh, probably thinking about the idea of building more in terms of building a library. You mean as the opposed of to a the concept of and building a collection, yeah. uh, which evolved slowly over time in Los Angeles, certainly. But um, you know, people talk about building a book collection. And so that probably, being a lover of books, was in the back of my mind to some extent. But then I was, I didn't want to just write a, a history of the building that Bertram Goodhue designed in the 1920s. I really wanted to look at the, the whole history of the institution building towards that moment when, when they could move into it. Well, well, let's get started then. What was the city like in the 1880s at uh, the beginning of the process of the yeah. conceiving of a library and the building of a library and the role a library would play in the life of the city? And this is about the time the, the railways come to Los Angeles. It is. And, it is. Yeah. Well, the, the first, actually, there were some aborted attempts to found a library earlier, but uh, there was a private subscription library that was founded in 1872 when the city actually had a population of uh, just a little less than 6,000 people. Um, but that was related probably to the anticipation of the arrival of the first rail line into Los Angeles, but that was from San Francisco. In the mid-1880s, the first transcontinental railroads across the southern United States arrive in L.A., 
and the population explodes. First, in anticipation of the arrival of the railroads, the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe, the Southern Pacific. Uh, and then once they arrive, uh, it transforms the city in many ways. And it's at that point in time, in the late 1880s, as the population is moving towards 100,000 people uh, in you know, a little more than a decade, that uh, the city decides to build the new city hall. And that uh, was designed to accommodate the public library on the third floor. Right. That's the building that Calkin and Haas designed? Yes. Yeah. I, I didn't actually know that building, and it's a quite an impressive-looking building. It's actually a very good example of you know Richardsonian Romanesque or Romanesque revival, and there was quite a bit of that in, in Southern California. Unfortunately, the earthquakes <laughs> erased a lot of that, uh, if not directly, indirectly, because you know they were load-bearing masonry structures and subject to damage in, in any kind of major... Does equipment. that explain the brief life uh, span of that uh, city hall? Because a new city hall comes just 50 years later or so. Yeah, probably that, but also just the, the growing population. Both the city hall and the library in the city hall uh, were probably outmoded within a decade of when they were constructed in 1889 because the population just continued to, to grow. Well, well, tell us about the early years of the library itself and about uh, Tessa Kelso. Well... She was very headstrong, was, I think, a strong feminist, uh, hasn't been given the kind of attention maybe that she uh, deserves, although there have been some articles on her, so I I have to give a nod to that. But she really transformed the library into a modern institution. Was she a first-generation Angelino, or did she come to Los Angeles? She came to Los Angeles, but we don't know a whole lot about her background, I don't think. Uh, She was an editor and writer, I think. She wasn't really trained as a librarian. But once she was appointed as librarian, she dove into the profession. Uh, She started attending the meetings of the American Library Association and actually caused a rumble there, sort of uh, fighting for women's rights when uh, the profession was really being dominated by men, although the vast majority of librarians were women. Uh, typical of the 19th century, I guess. She really helped to transform the library. She and the board uh, convinced the city council shortly after they moved in to allocate $10,000 for new books. And that really began to build the collection. Uh, Under her watch also, uh, they eliminated uh, what was a a rather modest but an annual dues that patrons had to pay. So it really became fully a public library. How how did people access the library at that time? Where do they live in this, what we now think of as Los Angeles? and, And how they get into the library. There are these wonderful pictures in the book of all these suited gentlemen sitting at the tables reading these books, reading newspapers and things. Were they coming from their workplace? Were they coming from home? Well, there were probably two different types of patrons initially who were shortly joined by children. But um, the library, you know, historically in the United States had been sort of schizophrenic. You had uh, the gentlemen's reading rooms and uh, they catered really to the business community, sometimes to the working class. But they would be coming from work. Uh, And then you had the women readers who often had their own room so that they wouldn't have to mix with the coarser male population, maybe. And that was true at at the L.A. Public Library initially as well. There was a women's reading room uh, and then the general reading room. And then very quickly that was followed with the children's reading room. You make reference in the book to uh, the role that John Cotton Dana played in the development of the library as, as a cultural institution, not the L.A. Public Library, but the library's cultural institution. I only knew of him as a founder of the Newark Museum, and perhaps the two were linked, the museum and the library. 
Yeah, I think they were linked when he first arrived in Newark. Um, and, New Jersey, yeah. Yeah, in Newark, New Jersey, exactly. Um, but he was a very influential voice for the library profession and was uh, really uh, in the middle 1890s a great advocate for the democratization of the institution. He advocated for open shelves um, previous to the 1890s. Books were kept uh, locked away in their own shelving rooms, their own stack rooms. And librarians um, had to get the books and bring them to the public. Uh, He felt that it was important that the public could browse the shelves. Uh, He was also a a major advocate for uh, the development of uh, independent children's departments and children's reading rooms. And how did those ideas, his ideas, come to Los Angeles by way of Tessa Kelso and her meetings at the Library Association in Mackinac, Michigan? I remember one such meeting. It seemed like a strange place to go for a great international meeting. Um, well, that and through the Library Journal, which was you know published monthly after 1876. Dana also published uh, some books on library management as well. Um, but he published in the Library Journal, and there were... Uh, series of sessions at the annual meetings, certainly, of the American Library Association, where all of these ideas were not only being put forth, but hotly debated. If you can think of librarians as hotly <laughs> debating open shelves and children's <laughs> reading rooms, but there were a lot of librarians who, who just didn't feel that uh, the public should be allowed access to their books. They yeah. felt like the keepers of the treasures. Yeah. So um, this kind of a library, coming from the ideas of John Cotton Dane and embraced by Tessa Kelso and the ambitions of Tessa Kelso, was when the library was, as you mentioned, in City Hall. Right. Uh, when does it leave City Hall and goes into manufacturing buildings and various other kind of commercial spaces? Well, that's after 1905, after Charles Lummis arrives. Uh-huh. The board hires Charles Lummis, who was a real strong supporter of Los Angeles at the time, but really had he was the editor of, of magazines and a writer, but had no library experience. But they turned to him hoping that, I think, a male could finally uh, get them out of City Hall and into more appropriate kinds of quarters. And why was it more appropriate to go from City Hall to a commercial building, for example? I think that was supposed to just be a transitional move. Um, Before the building of a real independent city hall? Yeah, they had completely outgrown their quarters in City Hall. Uh, they were just on the third floor of you know a relatively small building, and uh, the number of patrons and the circulation had grown exponentially. It would seem like a waste of time, and I kept thinking about that in reading the book, as they were moving from one property to another property, as if they had to redo that property and make it into a library, so there's a cost associated with that, and then you didn't stay there very long, and you had to do it yet again for another space. Uh, it seems like someone would have said, look, this is a waste of public resources. We can find a better way to do this. Well, a lot of people did, <laughs> especially the board. Uh, it was really inefficient uh, to to do that. But on the other hand, they uh, had been trying to find funds to build a purpose-built library building uh, really since the early 1890s. Uh, there had been a number of bond issues that presented to the electorate that had failed. And then by the late uh, 1890s, they were turning to Andrew Carnegie, at least in part, to uh, in the hope that he would be able to fund a new building. Yeah, that seems to be that's an incredibly important point and a very interesting part of the narrative of your book. And Loomis plays a role in this. I mean, was he hired in part because he would be someone they thought could convince Carnegie of uh, supporting the project? Well, I think, for, first of all, he was hired because he was a male. <laughs> and I think the board... Um, 
uh, had run through a number of women uh, as as they saw it, I should say. The women actually were, I think, much more professional and much more familiar with how a library operates than Lummis was. But um, I think they felt that uh, a male voice could convince the city to uh, allocate money for a new building or uh, could convince uh, either a local patron or Andrew Carnegie to uh, donate money for And there was a no local building. patron identified? No, actually not. And um, they didn't have that culture, the way they had the culture back east with maybe long generations, multiple generations of patrons or something who might want to bestow their generosity upon a public yeah, library. Yeah, L.A. was a very different culture, I think it still is, maybe, uh, than, than the East Coast at that time in particular, where you had you know, the old families, um, some of which went back to the original settlement of the colonies, uh, who were well-respected within the communities uh, by the middle of the 19th century, in some cases even a little earlier, but the Civil War certainly spurred industrialization, and some of those families became the major industrialists in uh, New England or up and down the East Coast, uh, they, uh, because of their family roots, I think, uh, felt uh, a stronger obligation to return some money to uh, to the community, although it often was self-interested in that the libraries they built were named for the family and right. uh, became memorials to to their industrial wealth and their family history in yeah, some ways. So that, so that doesn't and happen in L.A. We didn't but, have that But here. there was this idea that Mr. Carnegie, who had already announced his program for right. supporting libraries and had already begun to support the building of a library in San Francisco and Denver, or did that come afterwards? That came a little bit after that. Uh, Carnegie started to build libraries in the communities in and around Pittsburgh, where he had his industrial base, his steel plants. And so he was building libraries for his workers beginning in the 1880s. But he developed this idea of um, kind of self-help that uh, libraries could help uh, raise people by their own bootstraps uh, and educate them. So he began really locally in the 1880s. By the late 1890s, uh, he had uh, spread his largesse nationally, really. And uh, right at the end of the 19th century, uh, it was announced that he had uh, given money for a new library building in San Diego and another in Oakland. And I think it was San Diego that really tipped the balance because uh, although L.A. had uh, far outstripped San Diego by that time in population, they were still rivals because San Diego had the great port that L.A. never had uh, until they built one artificially. So there was a rivalry there, and so they said, well, if Carnegie can give money to San Diego, why can't he give money to us for a new building? And their idea was that he would give money for the central library. For a central library. And at some point he turns from doing that to providing support for branch libraries, and they missed the boat, as it were, on that. Yeah, they really did. Although also there were a number of editorials uh, in uh, Los Angeles papers, the Herald and the L.A. Times, which uh, really presented Carnegie's gifts in a, in a negative way, uh, sort of implying that uh, you know L.A. was better than than a city that needed to go begging to an Eastern industrialist. Um, and we know that James Bertram, Carnegie's personal secretary, had a clipping service, so he knew everything that was being published about Carnegie all across the country. <laughs> and I have a feeling that, you know, they, they were a little bit more disinclined to give money to L.A. because they were saying not such I nice see. things about Carnegie. Yeah. But you're right. 
about the same time as L.A. really began to look to Andrew Carnegie, he had shifted his focus from building large central libraries to um, giving money to build branch libraries and also libraries in small communities all across the country. Uh, ultimately, you know, building more than 1,500 libraries in the United States. I, th- I thought it was very clever of whoever, I can't now remember who among the sort of characters that were involved in this, I came, came up with the idea that, well, if we get money from him for branch libraries, we could just enhance one of the branch libraries and make it into a central library. It'd be a cunning way to use his money and for purposes he didn't intend it to be used. Mm-hmm. Um, but that didn't work. No, it didn't work. Carnegie eventually did uh, allocate to Los Angeles for six branch libraries. And uh, they were all to be equally uh, funded by that money. 30 to 40,000 each. Yeah, 30 to 40,000 each, which is exactly what Carnegie envisioned. We still didn't have a central library at the time, which is what we wanted. So the suggestion was made to James Bertram that uh, perhaps one of the buildings could uh, be built for something in the range of 60 or $65,000 and be used as a temporary kind of uh, central library. Um, and they got a very curt answer immediately from Bertram saying, take the money as it's been offered to you or not at all. Yeah, yeah. All right. So now we're close to the building of the building itself. That is the architecture aspect of the building. Um, this involved a site for the library, which hadn't yet been determined at the time. It was moving about the city of Los Angeles or the center downtown. Well, now I think it was downtown Los Angeles. But there are a few sites under discussion, including the site of the normal school, the kind of mm-hmm. teacher's school, and uh, Central Park, which is now right. Pershing Park. How did the library site selection fit in with this city beautiful plan that was being developed across the country and never seemingly embraced fully by Los Angeles? Well, I think, um, you know, probably the primary sentiment uh, early on was to place the library in Central Park, now Pershing Square. Uh, But there was a lot of resistance to that, as there still is, to building institutions in parks, think the Met in Central Park, you know, the fight people, in Chicago. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, people want to preserve open space. And even back in the early part of the 20th century, that still was uh, a very strong sentiment. So uh, there was a debate as to whether the library might be placed there uh, or they might find another location for it. At the same time, uh, there was uh, an embrace of the City Beautiful movement in Los Angeles. And there were a whole series of schemes to build centralized civic centers, but also cultural centers, or perhaps combining both. Uh, this was uh, something that happened in Cleveland and Denver, uh, in particular, Pasadena, uh, with its civic center a little bit later uh, as part of the City Beautiful movement. Um, and so there were a number of schemes set forth for this idea. Uh, and one of the main focal points for uh, an ensemble of buildings was what was called Normal Hill, where uh, the State Normal School was located, the forerunner of UCLA, actually, um, because of its sort of raised location, its prominent location. And At the sort of base of Bunker Hill or the downside of Bunker Hill? Yeah, it's sort of the, the lower uh, southwestern edge of Bunker Hill, which then rose up kind of precipitously above that. There were proposals to, to put everything up on top of Bunker Hill as well at one point. All of them probably too grandiose for what L.A. could afford uh, or accomplish at the time. And that really held up you know, the building of a new central library because it got 
caught up in all of those kinds of politics. Yeah. There were two important people at this time that you write about, Everett Robbins Perry being one of them and Ora Monette being another. Tell us about those two. Well, Perry was uh, an interesting individual, certainly. He had been trained as a librarian and uh, had worked in St. Louis for a short period of time and then moved to New York uh, and worked for the New York Public Library. Uh, he was young and ambitious. In 1911, L.A. was looking for uh, a new librarian, and uh, he applied and um, got a lot of support, I guess, came out and was offered the job almost immediately, uh, probably because of his association with the New York Public Library, which had just completed their great new central building on 42nd Street, but also had uh, built some uh, 60 uh branch libraries, using Carnegie money. Uh, Perry arrived in 1911 just when Carnegie had uh, offered the $210,000 to Los Angeles. And so I think the board felt, well, here's our man. He can actually get these branch libraries built. Uh, he brought a great deal of professionalism to the job. Um, but again, they were looking for a male, right, right, I right. think, yeah. uh, at this time. He seemed to have a great ally in this Aura Monette, who was a board yeah, they seem to really bond. It's hard to find. Well, I think there is more information out there on uh, Mr. Monette, but um, he had come from Ohio. Uh, he uh, was a banker and a lawyer. Uh, he was very well connected in the community and apparently was quite charismatic and was able to convince the city council to you know, move forward with new ideas for the library. Yeah, and I, and I gather that on June seventh, nineteen twenty-one, funding for the library is finally approved by the right. by the city council, and that was forty-nine years after the library association itself was started. So right. that was a long trajectory of uh, <laughs> attempts and uh, success and failing along the way. Uh, is that typical? No, in I public think institution. It, it may help hold the Guinness Book of Records for <laughs> a, a large central library actually being accomplished. Cleveland had a. a great deal of trouble as well. Um, you know, it was always difficult to raise a lot of money, but L.A. in particular couldn't convince Carnegie to donate the money. They didn't have a local philanthropist, and they couldn't convince the electorate to pass a bond issue uh, to build a library. Um, in part, in the teens, that was because they were in competition with uh, the growth of the city, which needed water. So uh, the Owens Valley Aqueduct was being constructed, uh, actually a little bit earlier, but completed in the teens. And they were uh, beginning just after the 19th century, even a little bit earlier with that, too, uh, to build the harbor. And uh, the city was expanding exponentially and annexing huge swaths of land. That meant that they needed to uh, build a new infrastructure of roads, of electrical connections, uh, water mains, sewer mains, they were all competing with the library, which fell you know, down the list because uh, they needed the necessities first. And I guess there was the First World War and the kind of anxiety that got in the way the First as World well. War. Yeah. It, it, in a way, got in the way. Uh, there was a bond issue. It looked like it was going to be placed before the electorate just before the war. Uh, and at the last minute, the mayor said, nope, nothing until after the war is over. Um, this is where we're focusing our attention. Uh, actually, uh, Everett Perry got very involved in supplying books to military bases in uh, Southern California, and the library really jumped into the war effort. They collected books, they collected money, uh, books in particular that they uh, crated up and sent overseas or to uh, other military bases, um, and that got quite a lot of attention. So in a way, the war 
stalled you know the building of a new central library but i think the passage of the bond issue in 1921 was premised on a lot of the goodwill that was raised by the efforts of the library to support the war yeah so it was 1921, a good decade for building great big public ventures because there seemed to be a lot of money in the 20s until the end of the 20s. But nevertheless, there was yeah. 1921, and there was a guy, Perry, and there was Monette on the board. So there was a team that was there able to sort of pull off this great big venture. The first thing they had to do, and they had a site. So mm-hmm. the first thing they had to do after that was to get an architect. So right. how did they get the architect? <laughs> That's still a little bit of a mystery. Um, There was a a lot of discussion about whether or not the board could just hire an architect, but the city attorney said that they really needed to hold a competition. Um, That would be the only fair way to do it. Everybody who entered the competition uh, was local, except for Bertram Goodhue. Uh, Goodhue kind of came out of nowhere, although he would have known about the competition probably through his former colleague, Carlton Winslow Sr., who had worked with Goodhue on uh, the construction of the Panama, California Exposition in San Diego in 1915. Tell us about that, because that was extremely influential in the selection of Goodhue, I think. Well, the exposition itself was envisioned to celebrate the opening of the Panama Canal, and San Diego, being the closest American port to the Panama Canal, felt that uh, this uh, held great fortune for their economic future, so they wanted to celebrate this. They initially uh, were working uh, with Irving Gill, a local architect, uh, but then decided that they needed somebody more prominent, uh, but also seemed to have decided that uh, Gill's work was a little too modernist and austere for uh, an exposition, which should be more theatrical and uh, ornate, as opposed to the type of things that Gill was designing at the time. So they turned to Bertram Goodhue. Now, Goodhue was identified with a kind of integrative approach, where he integrated sculpture with architecture, and then ultimately it would be a mosaic and painting, too. Um, Was that part of his initial plan, or was he chosen to do that, to design a building that was going to include the sculpture and mosaics and painting as well as the architecture? Well, it would have included a sculptural program of some sort um, in the Spanish sort of Baroque tradition or Spanish colonial revival tradition. The sculptor hadn't been chosen, but Goodhue certainly would have insisted that uh, his longtime colleague, Lee Oscar Lowry, uh, be chosen as the sculptor for the building. But uh, in terms of how it was originally envisioned, it probably would have been more um, a more traditional kind of Baroque sculptural program with statues of various figures placed on and around the building. Um, But uh, at the same time, Lee Lowry and Goodhue were uh, developing, uh, really um, evolving a a new type of form in Nebraska, which had really won him the competition in Nebraska. And this uh, really revolved around an integration of architecture and sculpture so that uh, the sculpture, uh, as it does in Los Angeles, appears to grow sort of organically out of the architectural yeah, it's like forms. it's just attached to the architecture. As opposed to yeah. attached. And, and Lowry talks a great deal about that, um, uh, how important that was to both him and Goodhue, that, uh, that the architecture and the sculpture be one, uh, essentially. Uh, Lowry and, and Goodhue actually had been working together since the late 19th century. And Lowry carved a lot of the sculpture or designed a lot of the sculpture for uh, Goodhue's Gothic Revival churches. Um, so they, they had a long and close partnership. 
by the time they get to the L.A. Central yeah. Library building, that neo-Gothic style has become a kind of um, almost expressionist style or, a, or even an Art Deco kind of style in which there's a kind of crispness to the design, a kind of uh, rectilinear crispness to it. Is this something that uh, Lowry's work evolved into over the course of the design of the building, or would it start that way at the, with the building? Well, I think you'd have to say both Goodhue and Lowry, um, because by this date, they were working very closely together. Uh, if you look at some of the drawings in the book, you'll see that the sculptural program is very vague. Uh, there are just sort of uh, generalized sculptural figures in Goodhue's uh, drawings. And Lowry actually at one point says that Goodhue had come to trust him so much that he would call him over to his office. They were both in New York. Goodhue would call Lowry to his office, point at the drawings, point to the places where sculpture was needed, and say, here's where we need sculpture. You know what to do. Right. <laughs> uh, so he wasn't even designing the sculpture. So he trusted Lowry implicitly to uh, to develop this. And, and Lowry produced. I mean, the, the library is famous for its sculpture. He was producing maquettes, which were then carved on site. And there was one celebrated incident in which the carving didn't quite meet the expectations of either the architect or the sculptor. What kind of talent was local in Los Angeles for the kind of sophisticated carving that the building represents? Not much. There was not much local talent. Um, they actually imported several sculptors from New York uh, who then worked with local sculptors as well to produce the sculpture. But you're right. Lowry would produce one-third scale plaster maquettes in New York. They would be shipped to Los Angeles, hoisted up onto the scaffolding, uh, where then the sculptors would take measurements from the maquettes and carve in situ. Uh, it's it's a really interesting process that I don't think has uh, really been given any attention previously or much attention in, in that the building itself is reinforced concrete construction. But as the concrete was being poured, uh, they embedded limestone blocks into the concrete, uh, and then the sculpture was carved as you say, in situ, in place, uh, which is a very medieval kind of idea that really wasn't being used elsewhere in the United States, as far as I know, at all. But did they work together on the program for the sculpture of the building? No, actually, that's an interesting story in itself, because the general program, uh, which revolved around this uh, notion of the light of learning, was proposed by Bertram Goodhue in a, a letter that he wrote to a Nebraska philosopher taught at the University of Nebraska named Hartley Burr Alexander. Goodhue had come to know Alexander through the commission for the Nebraska State Capitol building. Uh, Goodhue and Lowry had been developing a complex iconographic program for that building. The state legislature, I think, maybe didn't trust them because they were Easterners, uh, but also weren't really satisfied with the program. So they imposed Hartley Burr Alexander on Goodhue and Lowry to complete what is a really interesting program uh, in Nebraska. Apparently, uh, I mean, it's very clear, Alexander and Goodhue really hit it off. Uh, they were really widely read and, and had a kind of romantic streak, I think, about uh, history and mythology that they uh, they apparently shared, although uh, there isn't a lot of correspondence that survives between them to that particular point. But to get back to the story, Goodhue uh, wrote a, a three-page letter to Alexander just before uh, the final designs were completed and before Goodhue died, outlining uh, a generalized idea for the iconographic program. But he 
was going to leave it to Alexander to develop completely. Uh, he sent Alexander copies of all of the f- final drawings, but the inscriptions weren't complete. They were just generalized inscriptions that he wanted uh, Alexander to complete. And in fact, he told him how many letters he could uh, fit in a particular surface uh, or on a particular surface. He was aware of the kind of visual aspect of the sculptural program and the generalized content of it, if not the particular aspects of it. Yeah, there were some things that he kind of sketched in, but most of it not, um, so that all of the classical figures, you know, Herodotus, Virgil, Copernicus, those all came out of the the mind of Hartley Burr Alexander completely. He had actually developed a pretty uh, complete iconographic program just as the final designs were being completed uh, and being presented to the board in Los Angeles uh, early in 1924. The board actually approved the whole iconographic program. Goodhue, obviously, uh, although it's not implicitly stated, was very happy with it. Uh, Goodhue went back to New York and died of a massive heart attack. And then uh, really Alexander and Lee Lowry took over. All right. Was it was a building underway at the point in 1924? No. It would be months before even they started excavating oh, the building. Wow. So who oversaw the building of it and the execution of the designs and Carlton Winslow Sr. oversaw that, as well as the Goodhue Associates. Uh, actually, just after Goodhue died, um, there was a bit of a turmoil because the, the drawings had been approved, uh, but Goodhue was no longer with us. And so there was a question placed to the city attorney as to whether or not they needed to look for a new architect because now the architect was gone. And uh, the city attorney ruled that uh, if uh, Goodhue's successor firm, which initially was called Goodhue Associates, would uh, follow very closely the wishes of Goodhue. Um, and if Carlton Winslow uh, Sr., who had worked with him, also would make sure that the final design didn't veer very far from Goodhue's conception, uh, that they could go forward with that. So he gets the commission in 1921. He works on the design of the building for three years. He dies in 1924. The building begins construction shortly thereafter, and it gets under construction until it's deemed completed in 1933. So he did not see any of it rising from the ground, as we said. Are you surprised by the sort of quality of the coherence of the design and execution, that it was executed without the architect seeing any of it developing? That's a really good question. Um, I would say no, <laughs> in that I, I think, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Lee Lowry and Bertram Goodhue had been working together since really the 1890s. And I think they were working as one by that time. And I think um, Goodhue had a real implicit trust in the ideas of Hartley Burr Alexander, which is surprising. And then uh, a former associate of Goodhue's, Carlton Winslow Sr., was overseeing, you know, the actual construction of the building. Um, Goodhue Associates kept a close eye on things as well. So, so we we think of the building in terms of its architecture and its sculpture. We haven't talked about its mosaic or painting program. Was that determined before Goodhue dies, or was that all after he died? All after. All of the mural programs, and uh, the primarily murals, most on canvas, were decided upon uh, after Goodhue died, although the great domed interior 
which was painted by Julian Garnsey, uh, was overseen in part by Goodhue Associates, uh, as well as a lot of the other interior uh, ornament and decoration. So they were following really uh, sort of Goodhue's ideas and wishes. And it needs to be remembered that they had been working closely with Goodhue on the Nebraska State Capitol, which also has very elaborate uh, ornaments and, and murals. So it always conceived after Goodhue, but I think generally probably conforms to the ideas that he would have approved of. Yeah. Okay, so we have the building yeah. uh, at one side on the downward slope of uh, Bunker Hill, and then over Bunker Hill and beyond is the city hall, great city hall rising up, right. and then beyond that is Union Station. Right. Uh, so those three things that would be anchors to some kind of civic center development got distributed rather than mm-hmm. concentrated. Uh, what is the process that led to that, and why, why did it not develop a more concentrated sense of a civic plan? Well, I, I try to outline that in my book because it's never really been closely looked at, uh, which is interesting in itself. Uh, but uh, there were a, a whole series of different plans proposed by numerous individuals for grandiose city, beautiful plans, Uh, one that would have extended all the way from the current location of the city library uh, all the way beyond Olvera Street uh, and encompassed the entire uh, Bunker Hill area, which actually eventually was redeveloped beginning in the 1960s, but not as the way it was envisioned as a kind of Roman forum uh, in the teens and the 20s. But um, these included public baths and God knows what else. It, it, they go on and on. Uh, the library got caught up in that. Eventually, I think the library board just got fed up. Monette just said, no, we're just going to move ahead on our own with the library. We can't wait for a civic center any longer. Waited long enough. Waited long enough. Um, So the library went forward, and then uh, in the later 20s, more rational kind of plan for City Beautiful Governmental Center developed around uh, the current city hall. And uh, that began to generate then other buildings, the county courthouses, the federal buildings, and other things. The idea was that there would then be a park extending from City Hall all the way up Bunker Hill to uh, the current location of the Department of Water and Power um, and uh, a kind of second cultural center, you know, around Disney Hall and the other uh, symphonies up there. Uh, Union Station initially was, I think, more closely aligned with City Hall as part of a City Beautiful movement, but then was lopped off by the freeway. And so it no longer feels like part of that evolution or development. But it was located there primarily because there were already railroad yards along the L.A. River in that location, so it made made good sense. But it ended up to be fragmented. Uh, and, you know, L.A. has long been referred to as the fragmented metropolis, and I guess uh, that's what we, we got in a way. Uh, it did result in some, some truly grand architectural monuments, uh, the Public Library, of course, City Hall, and the Department of Water and Power is one of the great modernist buildings of the post-World War II era in the United States. Well, you tell the story very well, Ken. Thanks for the book. Uh, Thanks for letting uh, the Getty be a part of this book. Uh, But you do remind us that the building of a building is more than the building of a building, that it involves all the decision-making processes and all the the economy and politics in the building of it. So we thank you so much for the the book, for the time this morning on the podcast. Well, and I might add that the making of a book involves (laughs) many, many people. And um, it was really wonderful working with the people at the Getty. And they produced a beautiful volume. So thank you.
Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Art and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud, or visit getty.edu slash podcasts for more resources. Thanks for listening. <laughs>